Join us on the Get Vertical Podcast. So we sit down with Dave Loomis, founder and president of Loomis Marketing. Dave has a track record of transforming brands and enabling personal and corporate growth. He brings a wealth of experience in market analysis, segmentation, strategy, innovation, and branding. We'll discuss his upcoming book, Customer Outsight, and dive into the challenges of starting a career in a competitive market space. Don't miss this insightful conversation with a marketing expert who's worked with well-known global brands and coached companies and executives to achieve their full potential. Tune in and get inspired to take your career to new heights. I had to go back and it's a, it's a great, it's, that's a great story. Um, when I got involved in the innovation space at my holding company, that was just literally all me working against the forces of my own company, actually, which was fascinating. It was definitely an ask forgiveness instead of permission situation. Yeah. And that was a, that was a really good one. And then, you know, most recently, um, you know, I could talk about, uh, either the, you know, my book coming together and I've got another book that I'm just starting on. Um, but, but also even just very recently, my, you know, refocus on voice of customer that's like paid off so amazingly, you know, like marketer taking his own advice type thing. Do you know what I mean? Yes. You know, I, I was guilty of trying to be a lot of things that I probably, you know, I mean, I can do a lot of things, but that doesn't, and so can a lot of companies. Yeah. That doesn't mean you should. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was interesting, right? I was talking to a good friend and colleague yesterday, and it probably been a couple months since we talked, but at one point we were really tight and, and so it was just kind of like picking things up, but he's got his own firm and they were just, they're going like gangbusters, but he was talking about the same thing. Like when they started out and I, I think all, all businesses, when they, when they're, they go through these phases, right? Like when you're starting out, you're in survival mode and you're like, I'll take whatever comes. Right. But they, they, they quickly were able to get enough in the door that they were like, wait a minute, we're. Yes, we can do a lot, but we're great in these particular lanes. And they just started exactly. they just started giving work away that wasn't in those lanes. And yeah, I did that this week. I, I, I turned some work down that I previously would have, you know, jumped at. Um, not even out of desperation, just out of, you know, hey, I, I could I could figure that out. I can try and do that. But why should I? Because it's opportunity cost. Yeah. It's taking away from time that I could be spent spending doing something that I'm even better at. Yeah. And that's more focused. Yeah. There's a um there's a a ministry that's out there that's called Free Burma Rangers, uh, which is like this really Ooh. edgy group. They get, if you're familiar with like Doctors Without Borders, yeah. um they doctors without borders goes into they go um within one mile of rifle fire right um to help people right that are to minister to people that are caught in war zones and stuff like that right okay. um well this group free burma rangers covers that gap that one mile gap they go they they 
Are you serious? Oh yeah, they they get oh. ex special forces folks to, because they're they're like, wait, there's there's people that are stuck. Like they've got a video where they're in Mosul, right? When um, somebody's just laying waste. I mean, literally, it's a kill zone, and they're just killing people, right? And this group goes in and they lay down covering fire and they get the people out, um, which is is crazy. But the guy that that founded it, um, Dave Eubanks is his name. He's got this quote towards the end of the video where he's like, they're like, you know, well, what is it, you know, that you're, you know, most concerned about? And he said, I'm most concerned about doing good things that aren't great things aligned with our mission. Right. There's so, oh. there's so many good things we can do. Yeah. That mm -hmm. aren't, they're good, but they're not aligned with our mission. Right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a distraction. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things for a person to do and a company to do. Yeah. I mean, you have to know, you have to actually know what that mission is to make those decisions too. Yeah. So, so this, this ties into strategy as well. The whole Alice in Wonderland, you know, um, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there type. Thing. Yes. Yeah. There's a great line. I, I don't know if you remember the movie, but I think it was back from the 80s or the 90s. It was called Quigley Down Under. Right. It was just never heard. Of it's it. a Tom Selleck Western movie about a, <laughs> oh, that sounds about a cowboy in Australia. <laughs> right. But anyway, okay. he's got they're stuck and they're lost. And he's with this woman and she's like aren't you concerned we're going to be late and he's like you don't know where you're going you're not going to be wrong when you get there <laughs> you know yeah and you, and you won't be late either because you didn't have a time schedule really yeah yeah that's that's interesting i think a lot of people um probably don't know how to find their bearings yeah. and what they're what they're good at you know, the when I, I but most recently, I think I might have told you about how I I listed every project that I'd done in the last like 10 or 15 years you know, on a spreadsheet. And then I categorized them all. In I rated them all in terms of how good I felt I was at doing it, how passionate I was about doing it and did it make me money. So those are actually the three categories from the hedgehog and good to yeah. great um, rephrased, which is, you know, does it, um, am I best at it? Um, am I passionate about it? And does it drive my economic engine? And, you know, what was so uh, just eye-opening for me is that once I did this rating and I broke it into a couple buckets and I color-coded it, the top bucket that was all green, every single one of those was about conducting voice of customer interview. Really? Every single one of them. Oh. I mean, literally every one of them. And all the things that were sort of in the middle were a mix. And, but there were, and there were other factors involved too. Cause I kind of like, if, if there was a low score or a high score, I tried to like sort of suss out for myself well, what made that project so great? Yeah. Or what made that project fail or not 
be successful or I didn't like doing it. And sometimes it was um, a situation uh, where, uh, you know, the company was maybe too small and didn't understand what I was doing. Um, no fault of their own, but fault of me for getting myself in that situation probably. Um, so like larger companies seem to come out on top because I have some, you know, I have some very good experience and I know how to navigate those companies and, and help people that are in those companies navigate <laughs> through them because it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a maze. It is. And it's you know? a skill, right? It's, it's one of those things. So my father was a, a very successful small business entrepreneur. Right. And, and I remember him saying, Oh, the only difference is the zeros. And I was like, and then as I got into um, large corporations and fortune 10 corporations and stuff like that, I realized, no, no, it's not, it's, it's a totally different, they're, they're different skill sets. It's different. Everything's different. And it's like, um, now I work with both. I, I work with companies across that spectrum but I've had to learn when I'm working with startups and small businesses, it's, it's much more about that entrepreneurial get it done capability, right? And hundred percent when you're working with these larger corporations, it's, it is about get it done. It's also about alignment and bringing the team with you. And you've got to get, you've got to get all the opinions and the, the people right? You've got to, you've got to manage and influence a group. Oh yeah. So I have a client right now that I brought on, um, a couple of, I I'd worked for them maybe five years ago on a, on a big project for six months or so. And I, I just re-engaged with them. So a whole new group of people that are, that are involved on their end. And we're, it's a indu big industrial, um, uh, man, uh, equipment manufacturer, um, multi-billion dollar company with its own parent company. That's even many more billions. And <laughs> I'm, I, I mean, this is going to be a, this is a heavy lift because they have not had end user segmentation before, um, by industry for, for their, you know, they've sort of been like, Hey, uh, you'll love this equipment. It does the job, whatever your job is, Yeah. but, but we're dividing it into segments. And so um, this doesn't involve voice of customer because basically my first stage is setting up the, the, the segments. Um, so understanding, you know, what those could be and kind of socializing those and getting them set up so that I can interview into those segments to understand macro trends, pain points, and that sort of thing. So then we can create marketing materials that reflect that yeah. and resonate more with them and target them and that sort of thing. Well, I mean, I've been a couple months into it and I realized <laughs> I, I made this, I had to make a list. I had to make my own list again in Excel. Um, <laughs> I love Excel. Um, I made this list. I've spoke I've briefed 40 people internally in this company on the project part of those conversations were getting those a little bit of input on the segmentation but most of it was me just telling them hey I'm working on this 
just wanted to let you know and here's what the segmentation is starting to look like and here's our end game and all that just so you understand where we're going with this because we're going to ask them eventually for you know contacts and end user intros or rental company intros and that sort of thing so it's just funny because i'm just like oh my god i think i've just spent the last two months getting alignment it's crazy, right? And that that is a that's a skill and it's it's absolutely essential. There was a a guest I had on earlier and they had just talked about the importance of that, right? They they lead a large market, marketing organization and they said one of the number one things is is getting alignment with their peers outside of the function around things, right? And then getting alignment with their team in order to drive that action because they've got to produce results, right? And it's like, okay, I'm judged on my results, but even if I've got the best results, if people don't, and I think you talked about this in one of your podcasts on choreographing the customer experience, right? Yes. Which Yes. The reality of it is, is we all have customers, whether we're in a large corporation or we're in a small business and dealing directly with customers internally or externally. And you've got to manage their expectations, right? And you've got to meet them on that, that journey that they're going through. And so if you've got this project and it's touching, you know, 40 or 80 or 100 people, you've got to make sure all of those people have a good experience with that. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So it, it does, it, there's, there's differences between, you know, big companies, small companies, uh, who the, who the leader is and what their vision is. Uh, so this is all, you know, sort of, uh, circling back to the having a vision. I also, I, I mean, you've got to have a vision of what you're really good at in your, um, you know, sort of abilities, I would say, but you also have to know what drives you and really like, what is your purpose? Why are you here? You know, and I don't, I think, you know, a lot of that comes to people a little bit later in their careers. Yeah. Um, but I think it can come to people earlier in their careers if they, if they think about it, I heard this term um, in in a um, some videos that I've been watching and books that I've been reading. It, um, this term soul print, you know, like we all have a fingerprint, yeah. but 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 we probably all have a soul print, which is something that makes us unique, that really drives us, that that is more purpose oriented about like what what do we really want to accomplish here. Yeah which is bigger than just what's your job, you know? Um, But it does involve your job because gosh, that's how we spend a lot of our lives is, is what do we do with our hands and our brain and our time and all that. That's exactly right. Now you nailed it. And one of the things, you know, when we were getting on this call, you were talking about, you said early in your career, when you, how you landed your first, your first gig, right? That, it, it was, it looks like a smashing success on paper, right? But, uh, but it was a little bit of an interesting road, right, to get there. Can you walk me through that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is like, I mean, I've got a bunch of stories like this, but it was like, 
it was so instructive to me. And I, um, I've, I've never really forgotten about it or forgotten about sort of the mark that it left on me because, you know, we're never, there, there's rocky roads everywhere. I mean, that's just, that's just life. And if we think that it's going to be smooth, then we're, <laughs> we're in for a big surprise. Um, but there's also a never give up aspect because I feel like, you know, if we have a vision, uh, that doesn't mean that that's going to happen like at the snap of a finger just because you came out with your vision. Um, you, you've got to work at that too. So, so when I was in uh, college, I went to Northwestern. Um, University in Chicago. And we had at the time a great college, a great job placement office at the, at the university. So there were companies coming in and out. I mean, if you really took the ball and met with these people and took advantage of this, yeah, you, you, you were in good shape because uh, you, I was interviewing with all sorts of, you know, great companies, but they were they were all over the place. I was an econ and poli sci major. Um, and I didn't know, you know, whether I wanted, you know, was going to be a lawyer or go into politics or there were all sorts of options or, or just go into, you know, quote unquote business, which I didn't really understand at the time. I did take an advertising class in the Medill School of Journalism uh, my senior year. And I'm like, wow, people can do this for a living. Um, like this is like an interesting, like um, connection between right and left brain. Yeah. For me, it was, for me, it was um, not that I was going to go into the creative side of things. Um, although that did interest me and I, and I kind of have done a little bit of that over the years, but you know, I'm just like, okay, this is, this is something I can really get my, my head around and, I'd like to give this a shot. So as I learned more, I realized that this job at Leo Burnett advertising in Chicago was like literally the job. They're like, they're like the, the top students, you know, in my graduating class at Northwestern and, and a few other schools would vie for, you know, there would be hundreds and hundreds of people applying for like three jobs, you know, and you get into this quote unquote class of people that are starting at a certain time, you yep. know, at Leo Burnett. And at the time it was the third largest ad agency in the world. You know, the other ones were based in New York city and this was in Chicago and I wanted to stay in Chicago. So I'm like, Hey, this is, this is Leo. So I, um, I actually, you know, there were on campus interviews, there were multiple rounds. And then if you were lucky, you got through all of those and you got invited to go there for the day, okay. which was all day of interviews going from one person to one person to the next person, to the next person. And I, and like, you know, a few other people at, um, in my graduating class, um, you know, got made it to that, to that day. And I was, um, I was very naive at the time. I, I was so committed to this job. And I'm just like, Hey, I've made it this far. I'm going to, you know, uh, uh, it's going to be very clear to anybody that I talk to how much I really, really want this job. Right. Yes. 
so that's how I approached it. Basically, um, it probably came across as a little bit um, desperate, um, or, or just you know I, maybe overly enthusiastic. If I if I had to say it right, but um, I, uh, I I I went through this day of interviews. And, um, you know, I, I thought it went okay. Um, I didn't think it necessarily went great. I got asked a lot of the same questions over and over again by the same, you know, different people. And I, you know, so, uh, you know, but I was hopeful and, uh, and I wasn't doing a whole lot else to get another job. Right. So it was like, I was putting all my eggs in one basket and they were very slow in, uh, in letting me know, I remember my dad calling me up and asking me, you know, how's your job search going? Well, I'm not doing too much this week. I'm waiting to hear. It's like, uh, you better get on it. And I, anyway, held out all my hopes. And then I got this call that was just devastating, <laughs> devastating. You didn't make it. And I'm just like, wait, I didn't make it. What? I mean, I, I you know, it was like sort of back to square one. I just, I just, um, it was, it was a, a very, very rough time. Um, other things that were going on at the time, and this is, you know, this is instructive too, and I've never really brought this up, but um, my, my roommate's girlfriend, who was basically our, you know, our roommate too, um, ended up taking her own life yeah. like three weeks before our college graduation. So I was, I was, and my own girlfriend broke up with me around that same time. So I was like, okay, um, you know, here I am hanging out here with this grief. And then I had, you know, I I didn't get this job. Yeah. And I'm just like, what the heck, what am I going to do? So I, I went with a friend of mine and spent a little bit of time on Cape Cod over the summer. And, um, kind of got my head together. And I actually went to New York City um, over the summer and, and got some j- job interviews with with other ad agencies. And even just doing that, it, it, that, 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 was, that was just a great exercise because it got me you know, back up on the horse right. and it got me exposed to other, it wasn't just like one office that I'd been to or people that I'd talked to. I mean, I'd been interviewing in New York City. Yep. You know, okay. That's something. Then I came back to Chicago and I needed money, so I got a job at a men's clothing store called Mark Shale. And while I was waiting. And uh and I also was interviewing all over Chicago in a whole bunch of other firms. I sent out hundreds of letters, all that kind of stuff and networked and all that. And I lined up a bunch of interviews and now, you know, were they my first choice? I don't know, (laughs) but, but, but Hey, you know, I I wanted to be in advertising. So I'm like, Hey, I'm going to do this. And, um, there was a great, uh, there was a great sort of, um, uh, synergy or coincidence, um, type situation that happened when I was waiting on somebody in the men's clothing store, uh, you know, helping them find like a New Year's uh, outfit or something like that. And I 
you know, struck up this conversation with him. And he, he was like the top sales guy at, at WXRT, which is a, a radio station in Chicago, my, my favorite radio station. And, um, you know, he's like, Oh, I know, I know people at Leo Burnett. You yeah. Know? And I'm like, huh, interesting. So, you know, he was able to put a good word in, in for me while I was trying to network back into Leo Burnett, which was really interesting, you know, and, I ended up um, pivoting a little bit. So I went into the media department instead of the account management department. And I ended up going through a whole series of interviews and getting, getting asked to come back for the day. So it was just like, get to do it again. You know, a few months later, or, you know, after this terrible situation, and here I was again at chance two, second chance, you yeah. know, and I put that together for myself. And I went in and my mindset was completely different. I said, you know what? I'm going in here and I'm going to tell them I want to be in advertising and I'm going to be in advertising and I'm interviewing all over the place. I'm interviewing in New York City. I'm interviewing all over Chicago. I'm interviewing here at Leo Burnett. Yep. That's exactly what I did. I got the offer. Oh, that's great. I, I, and, and, you know, they, they, um, they said, "Oh wow, you know, we got we got to make sure we get this guy." Yeah, you know, and it was like completely different, and you know, I that changed everything for me. That job, even though I was only there for a couple of years, changed everything. I still have amazing friends from that time, and also just it just kicked off my whole interest in in marketing and and um and all that so but it, you know to me it was just that lesson i've got so many other examples of that now that hey i mean literally if you don't if at first you don't succeed try try again yes there's a reason why that expression exists yeah there was a book that came out i don't know maybe five it may be 10 years 10 years ago now it's the way the way time flies has to it was more than five anyway just but about i mean i think it was called grit Right. And it was, it was just, they, they looked at all of these different people and, and they all had different paths to success, but the one underlying characteristic was perseverance. They called it grit, right? It's just that ability yep. to like, like you said, right. I, um, so yeah, I come from a really strong faith background, like a Christian faith background. And, and that's, that's my belief system. And, um, as I look at that, right, when you were talking about this, it's like, hey, what, what's your purpose, right? If you've got that, that North Star, right, about what it is that you're, you're trying to do and, and you just keep pushing through towards in that direction, recognizing that there's going to be pivots, right? There's going to be a lot of pivots along the way. And so in the same way that when you're, you're climbing a mountain, right, you don't go straight up the mountain. Right. You, you, you zigzag back and forth and you, you, you use switchbacks and trails. And sometimes you go down a little bit in order to go further up. Right. Um, and it's, it, I love climbing mountains as a great metaphor for just overcoming things. Right. And accomplishing, accomplishing goals because it's not clean and it's not easy. Oh, it really isn't. It makes me think of, of this one. So after, 
after Chicago, I lived there for a while and worked in marketing. I went and got my MBA and worked in consulting a little bit. Um, and I moved back to my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio, where I worked at a holding company for a while, uh, actually a long while, 15 years. Um, but the, the, um, the leader of this, this holding company, I was sort of my boss's boss, but I worked extremely close um, to that person. And, and he actually is a, a, an incredible uh, leader and mentor and, um, and friend. But um, I had a kind of a shocking interchange with him one time because there's a, a, a program probably in most cities that, in, you know, in your city too, like a leadership program. This was called Leadership Cleveland where, you know, like people that are at senior level in organizations, you know, kind of get together as a quote unquote class yeah. every year and do activities around the city and learn from each other and network and that sort of thing. So um, somebody that I had been networking with, who was actually the in charge your owner of one of the large banks in town said, you know, he kept telling me, he's like, Dave, you know, you've got to be in this program. You're, you're, it's perfect for you. So you just, he's like, go ask your, you know, your, the leadership of your company to sponsor you. And I went into my, <laughs> this person's office and I said, Hey, you know, um, this leadership Cleveland program is coming up. Applications are coming in. Do you think, you know, that you could sponsor me? And he paused and he looked at me and he said, but Dave, I, I thought that program was for leaders. Oh. And, and, oh. and, and, and I'm just like, huh? And, and he's like, he's like, it's just for CEOs. It's just for people who are at the, the top, top of their organizations. Right. And I said, well, maybe it started out that way, but it's not like that now. Um, there's a lot of there. I wasn't obviously CEO. He was, you know, so, um, but I'm just like, wow, that's harsh. Um, for leaders. <laughs> so I didn't get it. I obviously didn't do it um, because, you know, you can actually technically pay your own way into it, but, or you can do it without a company sponsorship, but it, it doesn't, your, your chances are slim. Um, cause there, there's a high demand for the program. Well, fast forward to how many years later was that? It was probably like eight years later, nine years later when I was working for a different company, uh, um, a, a, a sort of the top PR firm in town. And they actually came to me and said, Hey, um, we want to sponsor you for the leadership Cleveland program. <laughs> I'm like, Okay. Um, and they said, we don't know if you'll get in. Usually it takes a few years to, you know, apply and get in and get turned down and get in, whatever. But, you know, we'd like to have you do that. And that, so I applied and and I actually got in. <laughs> and I just remember savoring that year so much <laughs> just because I was like, you know what? Here I am. Here I am. It didn't happen on my time frame or the first try or whatever. But, yeah. you know, here I am. And again, Man, that was incredibly impactful on my life. And I have also amazing friends and contacts and so forth from that experience. Those programs. But if I didn't have that North Star, yeah. that sort of thought that, hey, I, kn I just kind of knew this was in my future. Yeah. I don't know how I knew, but I just kind of knew. That's, that's awesome, right? And what I like, right, is that it's just 
sometimes no's aren't no's. They're not now's. Right. Um, Absolutely. Right. There, there's times when it's, you know, I want something and, and like, as I, as I look back over the, the course of my career and things that have worked well and things that haven't and whatnot is, um, you know, if you, you, as I look back on that, I, I recognize there's, there have been a lot of not nows, right. And timing matters. And I think that that applies also with like new products a lot, right. If you think about like the MP3 player had been around for how long before the iPod, Right. Right. Or, or what was that? What was that personal PDA, this personal digital assistant? Yes. That, that Apple, that Apple came out with. Yeah. That was too far ahead of its time, basically. Yeah. That's right. You know, and it took the Blackberry to, uh, you know, we're getting, we're, we're dating ourselves here, but it took, it took the Blackberry and then, and then some other things after that the Palm Pilot yep. um, and some other things that came along. But uh, yeah, yeah, timing is absolutely everything. Sometimes you're ahead of your, your, well, you know, it is going to be interesting sure. with like EV vehicles now. Right. Um, and I know I was redundant saying EV vehicles, but with, with the EVs that are out there because the, the infrastructure's not, not really there. And it is specifically if you're not in a, in a Tesla, Right. Um, it is, I know a lot of people that, you know, went and got, you know, EV trucks and things like that. And they, they couldn't get rid of them fast enough. They were just like, it just doesn't work for what I, I love the concept, but there's no, the infrastructure is not there. And I can't wait for the hours that it's going to take for this thing to charge. Yeah. I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday because um, not only is this happening in the consumer world, it's happening in the B2B world. So I'm doing a project that where I had to um, interview um, service managers who manage huge fleets of vehicles. Yeah. So um, one of the segments is utility fleets. And these are um, electric company, power company, um, water, you know, um, uh, telephone you know, all those kind of fleets that go out and you've seen all those trucks. They're the ones that have the bucket trucks and, you know, guys are up on the lines and doing stuff like that, um, trying to repair things or, you know, fix things. And um, so I'm talking to this guy at Pacific uh, Electric um, and, um, you know, he's telling me how, you know, California and their company, have, you know, have just come out to say, how far they're going and what an incredibly aggressive time frame it is to convert their fleet from internal combustion engine to electric vehicles. And he's like, he's like, well, um, you know, we've had a little bit of success putting battery packs in and using those instead of idling to, to, to do the power on like, say the, um, the yeah. bucket you know, when, when you're parked and, and all that, he's like, but for the actual propulsion of the vehicle, he's like, they think that this is just a few years away. He's like, this is two or three decades away. Yeah. He says, first of all, it doesn't have the power. Second of all, when it gets cold, it, it's, it loses its range. 
Third of all, there's nowhere to charge it. He says, lines go down in the middle of nowhere in the mountains of California. I'm going to take my that electric vehicle truck up there and and then it's just going to get stuck because I have nowhere I, I have nowhere to charge That's, it. Yes, right? It's and so how how ironic is it that it's the actually the power company itself that's telling me that we're not going to have electric <laughs> vehicles in an industrial application, right? It just oh, exactly. yeah, a truck roll. Oh my word, right? It, it's it's just not there from a dependability standpoint. I think, look, if if you live in um, in a mature metroplex and there's a good grid and there's a good infrastructure and things like that, okay, right? But it's it's one of those things that, and what I'm actually curious about, right? Because you're going from, for internal combustion engines and whatnot, and we're totally rabbit trailing, but when you're, when you're talking about like ICE vehicles, internal combustion engines and electric vehicles, you're going from what I call, you know, with the EVs, it's rare earth materials, right? And they're called rare earth minerals and materials for a reason. They're rare, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Hey, pick your poison. I mean... We're going from one challenge to another. Like, yes, right? And it's like, hey, you know what? It's we, We've got common materials here, low-cost common materials that, that run these things. And it's fairly dependable, fairly consistent and, and whatnot. You know how long it's going to last and, and whatnot to something that's rare and expensive. And... And an inconsistent infrastructure. I'm not saying that it's not going to get there because guess what? Electricity and the telephone and all of that other stuff went through the same, through the same development, right? But it's just, it's a question of how long is it going to take to get there? And also, do you really have the mineral base? I'm, I'm curious because I, I haven't done any research on this at all, but in, in terms of are there enough, is there enough lithium in the world? to convert, right? And, and maintain, it's a great right? question. Or, or nickel, nickel is another one that's in high demand for, for various yeah. things that are fueling our, you know, technology economy. And, uh, you know, who knew that there was a lot of nickel in Ukraine, for example? Um, there you go. I wonder why, I wonder why people are fighting for that territory. Yes. Um, real, really, uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. So back, but anyway, back yeah, you know, timing is important. Um, and you can't, you, your timing isn't always, you know, perfect, but that doesn't mean that you should shelf every, everything that doesn't go your way first time around. Yeah. Well, by the way, I think part of the reason we ended up on this rabbit trail, you were, you were saying you were a poli sci econ major. I was a history major with poli sci econ minors. And abs oh, absolutely okay. geek out on this sort of stuff, right? So, oh yeah, me too. Anyway, yeah. So that maybe we can talk about that in another conversation. <laughs> that sounds. That sounds. That sounds um, great. That sounds. Yeah. Good. So, it, it, as you think about it, like if you could give a message, right, to your younger self or to somebody coming along now, right, um, say they're five, ten years into their career. I'm assuming perseverance, right, and grit would be one of those things. But what would be a couple of other things that you would tell yourself 
Well, the one that I, and, and I've thought about this um, quite a bit, and I've, I've been saying this when people ask this question, is that I would tell myself that it's never too early to be a leader because I just didn't recognize like my leadership abilities or, or even try to develop them. I'm not sure that it, I mean, maybe some were innate, but maybe some just came from trying and, and learning how to do it. And a lot of it just comes from actually just being confident about whatever it is you're doing or saying or what have you. So that, you know, if you're going there, you can get people to come with you, yep. you know, that sort of thing. But I mean, I just questioned that for a long time. Um, maybe it's the structure of, of, of the way business works and like sort of job titles and seniority and all that, you know, sort of this militaristic structure of, you know, of layer upon layer upon layer. And you think, oh, well, I'm down here. I can't be a leader because a leader is just all the way up there. Totally false. Yeah. <laughs> totally false. Um, and I realized after a while in that holding company that I had more freedom than I thought. So I sort of got in a position where I'd paid my dues. I was sort of a, 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 trust, a trusted you know, individual to do the job, that, the job and jobs and roles that I was assigned. So I, I had a little, um, I guess, epiphany where I just said, you know what? I'm really interested in, in innovation. And I don't think that we do enough, we drive enough real innovation through our different subsidiaries. Um, we had four subsidiaries at the time that were very unrelated, coal mining, forklift trucks, kitchen appliances, kitchen retail stores. It was really fascinating, kind of old-fashioned holding company type thing. And uh, so the, the, the businesses didn't have a lot in common, but I thought, you know, innovation thinking is really in common. It doesn't really matter what business you're in. It's sort of a mindset and, 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 and potentially a process and some other things like that. And I started getting in, interested in it. And I even pitched, you know, I think I pitched within the company, hey, you know, I could take on this innovation role. No, no, we don't need that. In fact, we don't do anything um, intentionally. We don't do anything across our subsidiaries. They're just, they just operate autonomously. So don't go in that, you know, sandbox. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, I read a book um, called Open Innovation by Henry, Henry Chesbro at the time. He was at Harvard at the time, and um, he ended up moving out to um, uh, Berkeley. And I'm like, you know what? I love this so much. I'm going to try and find where he's speaking and see if I can get approval to like go on this trip and go see him. And so I found him and it was like sort of an unrelated field to me. He just happened to be the keynote speaker for, I don't know, some human resources, um, you know, sort of session. But I got approval to go and I went and I introduced myself to him afterwards and was talking to him. 
And I told him about the company and my role. My role was pretty unique at the time because I was an internal consultant and I helped manage these four subsidiaries from um, a special projects standpoint, just revenue enhancement, um, projects, branding, segmentation, that sort of thing, but also process improvement, all sorts of different things, whatever needed to do. And he's like, oh, I'm forming an innovation forum group. Um, you know, do, do you want to join? And I'm like, yeah, how do I do that? And he says, well, you got to make a $10,000, you know, quote unquote donation to Berkeley. Um, you know, that's what it is. But basically that is the, you know, sort of annual fee to be part of this group. <laughs> and I'm like, huh, okay, that sounds great. So I go back and my boss was very, my direct boss was very uh, understanding of this. And somehow she got this approved, um, maybe without telling anybody, I'm not exactly sure how it all came down, but she got, got it approved. And I joined this group and I went out to, you know, Berkeley and I'm sitting there and there's, <laughs> there's people from like Dell and Intel and, you know, G, probably GE. I mean, I don't know, um, air products, um, uh, folks that, you know, um, probably through ISBM and some other organizations. So yeah, um, it was absolutely fascinating. And unless I'd actually taken the ball and, and actually just done that myself, yeah, never, never would have happened. So I got so energized by this group that I did something very, very risky. I did tell my direct boss, but I don't, she did not tell the CEO. And um, I, I actually went back and I organized an innovation, an in-person innovation forum that included representatives from all our subsidiaries. <laughs> yes. And I had that, I had them fly into Richmond, Virginia and I got guest speakers for it. And it was like a two day event with a dinner. It cost a freaking fortune. And somehow, you know, it was a, it was an ask forgiveness, yeah. um, you know, instead of permission situation. And that was like, when I realized, you know what, I, I actually can, you know, I can be a leader and I put all this material together for it. And then I showed it to Henry Chesper and he's like, Hey, can you present this to the forum group? Because this is amazing. And so here I am, you know, a, a, a year or two after having this epiphany or this great idea that, Hey, I'm just going to pursue this stuff. So not only did I pursue it, I learned enough about it. I organized this group in my, you know, multi-billion dollar company. And then I pr was presenting at this industry, the, 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 this private forum group that was like the leading companies in the nation. And they're all like, wow, that's fantastic. Can we use that? You know, like, okay, I think I got this. Isn't it Why didn't I do this sooner? Yeah, yeah. Isn't it crazy, right? That, you know, the, the old saying and cliche, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And a lot of times, to your point, you went somewhere that you went to this forum to learn about innovation, right? And then you ended up adopting and, and doing something that nobody in that group had done, 
right? Which was to disperse and, and to share that information across, across your company, right? And be able to start sowing seeds of innovation there in an, in an early stage, right? When back when it wasn't as prevalent, right? And it wasn't as easy to kickstart, and especially in some stodgy old industrial companies, right? Sometimes it's exactly, exactly. It's really tough to get that going. But I, I love the fact, right, that you're, because I, I think back, you know, along the same lines around my career, and there's, there's things all of a sudden people are like, wait, you did what? And it's what, as you're telling this story, right? It's, you were like, Hey, I need to share this. How do I do it? Well, this is the best way to share it. And you've got to create some energy around it. So you need good speakers that are going to be there. It's not just you coming and saying, Hey, I heard X and talking for a day and a half. Exactly. You got to hear it from real experts. Um, Yeah, it was, it was, it was terrific. Uh, It was a lot of fun. And, and then I, it was pretty dicey when the CEO did find out about it. Um, he's just like, you did what? Um, and I showed him the final presentation for it after the fact and that kind of thing. And he's like, this is interesting. And I learned over time, he warmed up to a lot of things, you know, over time. Yeah. So, all right, I've got a quick question for you. As, as yeah. we're, we're getting close to the end, you've done... You said voice of customer is your passion, your calling, and 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 what you love. You've been on, I don't know, thousands probably of VOC interviews and and whatnot along the line. Do you yes. have any crazy stories? Do you have anything where you were like, I wasn't expecting that? Right, eye raising moments. Hmm, that's a good one. Well, the. Without, I mean, you got to protect the innocent, always, right? So, yeah, I always, I always um, find something surprising. I mean, I always that that is the beauty of doing voice of customer correctly is that you will hear things that you don't expect. Um, one of them very early in my career, um, I. I had to I had to go f- to Sydney, Australia, for Motorola, uh, for their two way radio business, and I I had to do competitor research also, and I'm not exactly proud of like sir, maybe I misrepresented myself a little bit or maybe just didn't tell the whole truth that I was working for Motorola, but anyway, I befriended a guy who was like. Sydney's wealthiest person who um, he, he owned the competitor two-way radio business. Okay. And he was interested. I said I was doing this study on two-way radio, you know, which was true. But he picked me up or had me picked up in his Jaguar by his driver and then drove uh, driv- drove me to um, there's a uh, tower uh, like a lookout tower in Sydney that has an observation deck at the top. Yes. And th- I was dropped off there and told to go to the observation deck. And I went to the observation deck, and here and this guy is there uh, to meet me. And he goes and he unlocks this door. Uh, 
you know, on the observation deck in the, you know, there's a gift shop up there and other things. And the stairway is there. And we go up there and it's where all the two-way radio stuff is and the towers and all the equipment and, you know, more observation decks that like literally no one goes up into. And I'm sitting there and I, that's where I'm doing my VOC work from. Um, and interestingly enough, in that project, I interviewed other people that Motorola customers. And this was something about, I mean, I don't even remember what the original objective of this project was. I think it was something like, uh, you know, how to expand the service and, you know, just traditional stuff, how to increase share, whatever. Well, I had a few people tell me, oh my gosh, this is the only thing that works for me. And they just sort of mentioned offhand, you guys could double the price and I'd still, you know, I wouldn't have an alternative. Cool. <laughs> so guess what we told Motorola? You could double the price. Uh-huh. And guess what they did? <laughs> double the price. And I bet their customers and, love them for it, right? Yes. Oh, I'm sure they love them, except they paid it and they made a lot more money. Um, so th that that was sort of a good surprise in that you have to listen for thing unexpected things. I think another on the on the downside is that um, if you are doing voice of customer interviewing with someone, which is recommended, I mean, to, you know, if you have a team of people that you're talking to, you know, someone or, or another group, um, you all have to be on the same page and you all have to um, understand that this meeting is not about you and your list of what you want to find out. It really should be about the customer and what they want to talk about. Yep. And, and um, that probably the, the cardinal rule that gets broken the most is uh, some, a term we use in, in the legal realm, um, leading the witness. Yeah. We're all guilty of it. And it's so hard because when you ask an open-ended question and you wait for a response, that pause of silence is so uncomfortable to human beings. I think we can stand it for like 1.3 seconds, but it feels like forever. But sometimes you just have to wait. Yeah. And when you're waiting, if you ask someone an open-ended question and you get no response right away and they're just looking blank, blankly or whatever, <clears throat> um, it is torturous to actually sit there and not say anything and to let them speak. Yeah. But, the, the, you know, if you think about it, the pressure's on them. You ask them a question and they're thinking about it. And so um, they might come out with something. And actually, under those circumstances, the thing that they come out with can be the most important thing that, of the entire interview. And it's usually at the end, when all other things are exhausted, and then you ask them, what else? Or what other things? You know, oh, this one thing that I forgot to mention, you yeah. know? <laughs> I was with somebody, we'd gone across the country, flown, talked to this engineer, a sewer engineer. This was a sewer project. <clears throat> and I'm with another person, you know, and I tried to, you know, get him to understand this, how we're doing this and all this. I asked, it was at the end. and. I said, so 
anything else, you know, just, you know, you know, rack your brain for anything else, because this is, you know, we're almost, we're almost done. And we waited and we waited and he was just about to say something. I just know he was literally, he was just, in fact, he was starting to say something. And my, my buddy interrupted and said, sustainability, I'll bet, I'll bet that's a really big issue for you. And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I guess it is. I guess it is. Um, And then he started talking about that and that, and and I'm just like dying. And then after that sort of side conversation, I said, you were just about to say something, you know, what was that? I don't remember. Yep. Yep. (laughs) It's crazy, right? The importance of just allowing your customer to talk and zip it. Right. It's, it's mm-hmm. hard to do, but it is compelling and powerful when you do it. And I, I think it's something that's absolutely often overlooked along those lines. I, I remember when I was a product manager and uh, one of, I was in the tool industry and, and one of my peers was conducting a focus group and they were comparing different offerings and they, the the product manager had a bias, a very clear bias, because they were behind schedule on a couple on a project, and it was a new product, and and so they had the tradespeople in the room, and they were talking to them, and and said, "Now, do you like this?" And I'm going to protect everything, so you know, or, or muddle it all yeah. up. There was like, "Do you like?" I'll, I'll use a pen, right? Do you like this pen with? this really crisp point on the end and fine writing style and grips on it? Or do you prefer this competitive pen and the way that it writes? Literally, that was the way they set it up. And I'm sitting in the room and I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. And of course, every confirmation bias called out all, all the features of the offering on the new product, right? And then held up the competitive pen, right? Or offering and said, or this one, right? And it was just like, it was like, it's of course they're like, well, yes, I like, I like the new one. And they're like, well, why? And well, because of the grip and the fine writing and this and that, right? And they, they listed off all the benefits. <laughs> and, and I saw the report afterwards that was submitted, right? And it was pitched and everything. And it was just like that literally, it was like, yes, it confirmed everything that we saw or thought. Was like, of course it did. Yeah. Of course like, it did. Yeah. Know, and then you, then you then you launch those products and and people are, say oh yeah that's great i remember seeing that yeah i'll take it but you're you're not going to charge me anymore for that yeah yeah because you didn't ask me would i pay for you know yeah. that or you didn't really understand the outcome i was looking for oh my um, word um another day another story uh when we get together i i was running a a business that was doing IOT before IOT was a thing, right? It was still called remote yeah. monitoring and diagnostics. And mm-hmm. a company had spent millions of dollars on something with um, some false assumptions is a good way to put it, uh, right? Okay. Specifically customer uh-huh. willingness to pay. Right. right? It was just like, right, right. They, the, all the research had been done and it was just like, do you like this product? Yes. Do you like this? Yes. Would you use this? Yes. Right. 
and then went back to sell it. No. I was like, well, why don't you want it? Well, I don't want to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, a lot of this comes down to mindset and, you know, why are we in business? Are we in business for, to make ourselves successful or are we in business to make our customers successful? Yeah. yeah. So the new book that I'm working on is called Outsight, Outsight, Customer Outsight. Not insight, oh, outside. Start. Because you know what? Everybody claims to have insight. You know, these days, yeah. everybody's doing VOC. Everybody has insight. But do you? I still feel like most of the time, it's us just looking harder at customers from our perspective. Yeah. But to really understand, we have to look at us from their perspective. And that's, that's what I'm calling outside. I love it. And I, I just, there's tricks to getting that. It's not impossible. It, it, is, it is doable. But you really have to change. You literally have to change your perspective. You do. There's, a, there's an exercise that I, I do regularly with our clients. And I did it when I was in, in the companies as well. And it almost always people get a little nervous because I'm like, well, it's reality is it's a two day workshop. And they're like, Oh, I don't want to spend two days doing this. Right. And it's like, right. But, and then we sit down and, and go through it. And when they, I, I met with the team and they were like, we don't, we can't afford to take two days out. And I was like, great. And they said, okay, so what's the timeline? And I was like, well, <clears throat> essentially every day in this workshop is going to save you a month is what I've been able to validate. It saves you a month in development time right? Before we go to market. And they went, yeah. Oh, okay. We can take, we can take two days. Like it, it's a minimum of, it's a minimum of 60 days that it's going to take us to make up that gap by us just not getting together in a room and focusing and looking at us through our customer's eyes. Yeah, that is, that is the, that is the key. And, and, you know, you can say, Oh, I really want to, you know, get uh, the customer's, you know, view on this. And, and but but unless you really know how to do it uh correctly and you're willing to change that mindset of how you're going into it, then you, then you get what everybody else is getting. I mean, do you think your competitors are just sitting around not talking to customers or prospects? They're doing the same thing. Right. Anybody that isn't doing some form of voice of customer right now, it probably isn't in business. Yep. So you just have to assume that everybody's doing it. So if you're going to do it like everybody else, you're going to get the same result as everybody else. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Do it differently. Oh, without a doubt. All right. Hey, Dave, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do it? So it's uh, loomismarketing.com, L-O-O-M-I-S, marketing.com, Dave at loomismarketing.com or that, that website. And uh, got my first book, which is uh, Marketing is Everything We Do. Love it. How serving, how serving Others Brings Success in Business and in Life. And uh, you, can, you can pick up a copy of that on Amazon. Uh, and uh, hey, you, my it, my my uh, phone numbers on my website. You can call me, text me, whatever. I'm findable. LinkedIn. 
I'm extremely findable. So, uh, so if anybody wants to reach out, would I love talking to people, new people. So I love it. And by the way, you've got one of the cleanest uh, LinkedIn profiles that I've seen. It is extremely compelling and very well done. So, oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I think there's, but there, well, there's things that I know that I need to do to even improve it further because I've, 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 I've heard and read and things like that. So, um, you know, work in progress. Next time we get together, please tell me about it. All right. Okay. Okay, Dave, thanks so much. I appreciate it.